0: We are in a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and um, just before we read the passage that we're going to look at tonight, just a a kind of bit of an introduction really, because um, why we preach in series and serieses in our church here is that we, um, otherwise, Edward and I would always just be choosing our favorite passages we would be preaching on very similar themes all the time. And this discipline of going through a book, I, I'm trying to make an excuse for me this evening. <laughs> you have to face passages that you don't always understand completely. And, but you try and bring God's word. And um, that's my excuse for the evening before we get on. Paul was an amazing man of God. And you will know, if you've been a Christian at all, that he was an incredible Christian. Probably the most influential Christian. Most of our New Testament that we have is written by him. He had an amazing conversion on the Damascus Road. You remember, he wasn't always called Paul. He was called Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious Jew. And he hated Jesus. And he hated the church. And he saw it as his role to stamp it out. But then he had this amazing experience traveling to Damascus. He was going there to find Christians, to arrest them, round them up. But he meets the risen Lord Jesus and his life is transformed. And he is given a commission from Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Although he was a Jew, he was also a Roman citizen, and he is given this commission to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And although Romans, as a book, when it was written, was only probably read by a handful of people, it has been, through church history, one of the most influential books in church history. People like Luther, and Wesley, had their lives transformed by reading This letter. And what Paul is seeking to do, some people have called it Paul's gospel. I don't think it's it's Paul's attempt at a gospel, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it is Paul at his kind of most theological, in a way, setting down, trying to understand the implications of the fact that Jesus saves. This is the understanding of of trying to get to grips with this letter to the Romans. He is trying to fathom out all the implications of what it means that God became a human being to save us. And he begins to write that out in the letter to the Romans. And so we come to this passage, uh, Romans chapter 3. One other detail just to let you know is that the small church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And they weren't always getting along really well. So he writes, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, They have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some do not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say That God is unjust unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, As we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin." But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And we'll stop there, actually. Oh, no, let's go Can, Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Danny. Can we have that one back, that verse, just 26. Sorry, I thought you could go straight to it. Good enough for me, thanks, Danny. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's all very clear, isn't it? I think we need to pray, and I certainly do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you grabbed hold of him on the Damascus Road. We thank you that he gave his life for you and served you. And we have those words that he wrote down to instruct us, to bless us. And we pray tonight that you would illuminate your word to us. And it may be different to each one of us here tonight, but that you would just bring to light in our own hearts and minds, what you would have us hear tonight. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. You've heard some of these um, good news, bad news jokes. Um, They're around everywhere. There was a Baptist minister, apparently, who was a keen golfer. And uh, he was so mad on golf, he would pray, God, is there going to be golf in heaven? And uh, apparently the Lord answered once, and he said, well, there's good news and there's bad news. The minister said, oh, well, what's the good news? He said, yes, there is golf in heaven. He said, brilliant, what's the bad news? And he said, you're teeing off tomorrow. (laughs) I was thinking this week of uh, just a way of introduction to this message, and um, it's going to ask the question: What's the best news you could ever hear? And for every one of us, it would be different. What's the best news you could ever hear? You might think it's you've won the lottery. You might think it's hearing "I love you." You might think it's you've passed, thinking of exams. It might be you're forgiven. What's the best news you could ever hear? Well, in the Bible, there's a good argument to say that the best news that you will ever hear is well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome. So what's the worst news you could hear? Well, I guess for all of us, the worst news would be someone close to us has died. Or I'm sorry, you have cancer. Or something like that. Or I don't love you anymore. Again, there would be an argument to say from Scripture that the worst news you could ever hear is Jesus saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. Paul has already, in chapters 1 and 2, if you've been with us over those weeks and if you haven't, um, don't worry, but in those chapters, he has made a case, an argument, basically about bad news. He has argued that we are all under God's judgment. We are all accountable for our sins. We are all without excuse. And we all need salvation. And by nature, we are objects of his wrath. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? And just in case you haven't got the message, Paul starts another chapter on the same theme. And when you read this amazing letter, you would be forgiven to think that this negative focus, certainly in the first three chapters, leaves us wondering why on earth Paul calls it the gospel. Because the gospel, the word, means good news. Good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. But... Paul seems to be starting with bad news. Paul is also aware that good news is not always good news for everyone. Can we think of an illustration? Say, the angels, when when they brought the news that uh, Jesus was going to be born, they said, we bring you good news. They said that to the shepherds. We bring you good news. Today, a saviour is born. And that was good news for the whole world. But if you were Herod, hearing that news, it was not good news for you. It should have been because Jesus came as Herod's saviour as well. But he received it as bad news because he was going to try and get rid of Jesus because of sin. He received the news, bad news, for himself. Paul, in other places where he's writing, talks about believers in Jesus carrying the fragrance of Jesus wherever you go that by your life and your actions and your witness, you are carrying the fragrance of the knowledge of God wherever you go. And you carry that fragrance, as it were, to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. But it seems different to them both, because to those who are being saved, the fragrance of Jesus is wonderful. It's life-giving. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. If you have received that amazing gift of grace... The knowledge of Jesus is just too wonderful. You can't keep it in. It's just the best news you'll ever hear. But if you're a person who says, I don't want that, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in God. In fact, you're quite anti-God. The news that Christians bring is received as bad news. Because the gospel says that Jesus has come to save us all because we are all lost. And that's an affront to anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus because you say, why am I lost? Why am I separated from this so-called loving God? If he loved us that much, he wouldn't cause a barrier. Well, he doesn't. The barrier is put up from us. And that is what Paul is trying to get to grips with in this passage. This kind of good news that he's bringing, people need to understand the bad news first. The bad news is that left to ourselves, we are all lost eternally. Because we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is, we're not like God. We're not perfect. If we were perfect, we would be like God, but we're not. Therefore, we fall short of the glory of God. Sin, as you know, if you know the sort of scope of the Bible, comes from the temptations of the devil. And he causes that breakdown between humanity and a holy God. And he deceives humanity. He deceives humanity. And so therefore we are lost in our sin. And Paul has to argue this, that whether you're Jews and you've had religious upbringing and you've been a a religious person all your life, you are still in the same situation. Because religion cannot save you. It's just bankrupt. And he addresses this to the Jew, the Gentile, the God-fearer and the pagan, the agnostic and the atheist. Because everyone needs to hear. Paul, at his heart, is an evangelist. And he really feels that we need to understand the problem. Because unless we understand the problem, we will never appreciate what Jesus has done for us. And in our human nature, we will seek to find the loopholes, the wriggle room, the excuses that we can come up with. And he addresses those in the church there in Rome who were Jews who were saying, well, we've had the law. You know, all the history of the patriarchs and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all through We have been God's chosen people. And Paul is saying, exactly, but what did you do with it? You were entrusted with God's message for the whole world, yet you kept it to yourself. And not only that, you've twisted it and made it such a burden for people that they cannot see God. They were supposed to deliver the message... And they failed. I don't know if you've ever been entrusted to deliver something that was not yours, a message or some important message. I, I've been a best man once. I, I was my friend Sam's best man. He was my best man. And you're entrusted with the rings. He actually entrusted me with the rings. Would you believe that? Nowadays, they keep hold of it and just give them, you know, right. You can hold them now when you get to the service. I had them. Imagine, just I mean, it's a silly illustration, but imagine, I've got the rings. I'm going to run off with them. That'll be funny, won't it? Paul is arguing that the Jews were entrusted with the message of God. They were entrusted with something so precious, so meaningful, that would be for the whole world. And they ran off with it themselves. And in fact, they twisted it. They failed it. So Paul's charge to the Jews is that you were faithless. But God will remain faithful, always. God is always faithful. He is never faithless. When you read through the Old Testament, you quickly see how quickly humanity loses its way again and again and again. Even the great people of faith in, in the Bible, and Moses or David or the kings of Israel, time and time again, they lose sight of God and they go their own way. So there were some... Who were interpreting Paul's message as saying, well, if our unfaithfulness increases God's faithfulness, shouldn't we be more unfaithful? Because that will highlight God's faithfulness. Do you you understand? Or they put it another way. Paul, you're saying that God's grace is amazing. It covers all sin. That Jesus' sacrifice covers all sin. And it brings glory to him. Well, people were saying, well, well, let's sin more. So more grace can come. It's amazing how humanity just begins to twist it. And Paul, he's quite he's quite tough on them, isn't he? He's quite, you know. He, he would be a blunt northerner. You just speak it how it is, you know. No, no messing about. I mean, we, you know, those of us from the south, we, like, you know, we don't like upsetting people. We don't, you know, we're trying to find a way around. Will they still like me? Paul is true to the word of God, true to the revelation that he has, and he doesn't beat around the bush. And it offends people. And even the church has done the same things. If you read the the early chapters of Revelation, the letters to the churches, they've again gone their own way. Failed. And human nature encourages us, our nature, to cover things up. It's there throughout the Bible, Adam and Eve covering up, blaming one another. Paul here affirms that the law was never intended to save anybody. It cannot save. Because none of us can be perfect. In fact, what he calls the law is a means of measuring how we fall short. This is the bad news, we are never going to be good enough. You depressed enough yet? What he is saying is to the church there that both to Jew and to Gentile, to those who have come to Christ from a pagan background or whatever, because it was a melting pot, we're all the same. All of us need Jesus. And we come to faith in Christ by His grace. None of us can earn it. It is a free gift of God. All we can do is receive it. All of us need salvation because we are lost. And Jesus has come to save, to rescue us. And that's why we need to come to Jesus. Because if we say, well, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to get through this on my own. And if there's a God, I'll stand before him and I'll say, well, this is who I am. This is what I've done. It won't be good enough, says Paul. Or to the person who says, well, there is no God. And I'm going to stake my life on it. And I'm going to stake eternity on it. And when I die, there's nothing And Paul will get on to that when he talks about the certainty of the resurrection because of Jesus. We need to come in repentance and faith to Jesus, who is the only one who can forgive our sins. No one else can. No one else can forgive our sins. No one else can make us right with a holy God. And when we come to Christ. He forgives our sins. And he begins to change us. And he begins to challenge us. And put his finger on areas of our lives. And say well that, that's the bit I want to deal with next. And it's all done in his love. Because he wants to make us more like himself. That's the purpose and work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And the rescue mission is through the cross of Jesus Christ. A poem by Louise Fletcher Tarkington begins with these words. I wish that there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again. Where all our mistakes and all our heartaches could be dropped like a shabby coat at the door, never to be put on again. She's not a Christian. you imagine Paul, if he listened to that, he'd be screaming, there is a place. A wonderful place. It's at the foot of the cross where you can drop all your sin. It's all paid for and have that assurance of forgiveness and that gift of eternal life that's amazing grace paul wants them to understand that they have been rescued not that christianity is some sort of fashion accessory you see you can add christianity to your life just to make it a little bit more cool Martin Lloyd Jones, who preached for about ten years through the Book of Romans, I am exaggerating, but not by much. I read his quote, and I just think it's wonderful. He says, "You," and just you know, it's it's out of context, but it's just a wonderful quote. You cannot be a Christian unless you have been made speechless. And he goes on, the trouble with people who do not recognize Jesus is that they have too much to say about themselves, about the world, about God, pontificating as to what God should do and shouldn't do. That he has let them down and abandoned them. He goes on to say, but Noah Krishna is someone who has been made speechless by the amazing, unfathomable, Unquestionable grace of Jesus that God Himself became a human being to take your sin and my sin away that we might be with Him in a relationship for eternity. And when you first hear about that, I remember when I first understood it, I was gobsmacked. I think Peter prayed it earlier. I don't know, I had my eyes closed. That God would love me enough. Me. In all my weaknesses and all my failure, he loves me enough to die for me. And he calls me to be part of his kingdom. And he calls me to do life with him. And he calls me on further and further. And the good news is he's still calling me on. No, a Christian is someone who has seen Jesus and has nothing more to say than thank you for saving me. What can I say? The gospel wasn't given to us for our comfort but given for our salvation. The gospel does not guarantee you an easy life or even a happy life in the world's eyes. The gospel in Jesus Christ came to save us because without it we're lost. to whatever level we respond to God. And only God knows the heart of each and every one of us. We can't judge. Paul talks about this earlier on in Romans. You can't judge another person. I mean, obviously, if we know that they love Jesus with all their heart, we can rejoice that when they die, they're with Jesus. But we can't judge because we don't know the whole story. Only God does. But the gospel was not given... As I said earlier, as a fashion accessory, I came across this story in one of the commentaries this week. Of, again, it seems, a, seems an odd story, but there, it was a fictitious story. There's these two guys on an aeroplane, and the air stewardess comes around and says, please put on these parachutes. They'll make you look really great. You'll be able to pretend that you're in one of those action movies. And, uh, and the, the stewardess is so appealing and so sort of... Um, you know, convincing, they go, yeah, yeah, we'll put on these parachutes. And they're sitting on the plane, and after a while, it's, it's, it's really uncomfortable sitting on a parachute. And yours looks awful, so what it looks on me, I don't, I don't need this parachute. What are we wearing this for? And the writer says, imagine the same scenario if the air stewardess comes around and says, the plane's going down, will you put on these parachutes because we're jumping? It'd be a different scenario. <laughs> Give me a parachute. <laughs> I need a parachute. The plane's going down, we're jumping. The gospel was not given as a fashion accessory. It was given to save us. And underlying this passage, which if you've struggled with tonight, I struggled with all week. But what Paul is saying is we all are in need. Sometimes we underestimate our lostness by thinking, well, we're all right. But when we come to Christ, we receive salvation by faith, never earned. And then we carry that gospel wherever we go. And for some, it will be the fragrance of life. And for others, they won't want to know a bad smell. You'll be grateful to know that he goes on in the next few chapters to the good news. And explaining just what Christ has done and exploring the meaning of it all. But we cannot understand the good news unless we have appreciated the bad news. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you love us in such an amazing, amazing way. Thank you, Jesus, that you were prepared to step out of heaven. You, the maker of heaven and earth, and humble yourself to become a human being that we might be saved. We will never have the words to thank you enough. We will never fathom the reason why you love us so much. But we are so grateful. So grateful. And we want to pray tonight for our friends, our family. Those who do not yet understand the good news. And we ask, Lord, that you would keep on knocking on the door of their lives. And that you would keep on using us as witnesses for you. Because we know that Jesus has come to save the lost. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came looking for us when we were not looking for you, And you died for us. You conquered the grave. And you're coming again. And we want to hear the best news ever. Welcome, good and faithful servant. When we've run this race, when we've fought the fight, and we meet you face to face. May that be our aim in our life. to live for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We're going to sing in response. Um, Let's stand as we sing.